There truly is no one like our Lord. Amen. Would you turn to the Gospel of John, chapter uh, 20 this morning. We find the text of our sermon in verses 19 through 20 in the sermon we're calling Resurrection Day Ministry. Uh, we are going to read uh, verses 19 through 23 uh, just to gain a little bit of context, but our focus is just going to be on uh, two verses this morning, verses 19 through 20. So I pray that you have your Bibles open and you are ready to read John chapter 20, <clears throat> verses 19 through 23. Here's what the precious and fallible Word of God says. So when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. The disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. First Baptist Church of Grey Gables, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Let's go to the Lord and thank him for his word. Father, we do thank you for this word. We thank you for what we can learn from your word. We thank you that your word is powerful, Lord, that it is a means of grace to make us more like your son. We pray that you would do that very thing right now as we study Resurrection Day ministry, that we would learn much, that we would grow to the likeness of Christ through this, and that you would be with us and encourage our hearts this morning, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you. Now, as we come to the first part of our text and the very first words for our text, I'd actually like for us to spend quite a bit of time on just one particular phrase that you see there. It's a phrase that has occurred in the opening words of John chapter 20, this chapter, and it's one that John seems to emphasize again in our passage today. It's a phrase that stands out really throughout the whole New Testament, and the phrase is this, the first day of the week. The first day of the week. That's what it says there in verse 19 in the opening section of our verse. It says, so when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week. Now, it would have been enough for John to simply say that same day at evening and then go on to say whatever it is he wanted to say. It would have been clear to anybody reading this account that he's referring to that same day that he had listed at the beginning of our chapter, John chapter 20, where he had also told us it's the first day of the week. But in verse 19, he seems to go out of his way to re-emphasize what day of the week the appearances of the resurrected Christ occurred. Well, remember that the Holy Spirit is the ultimate author of Scripture, and that includes John chapter 20, verses 19 through 20. And the Holy Spirit is God. A being God, whenever he re-emphasizes something, he does so for a reason. 
Now, yes, we need to pay attention to every jot and tittle of the word of God, but we better even pay closer attention when God says something over and over again. And there can be no doubt that John and the other writers of the New Testament were inspired by the Holy Spirit of God to call attention to this particular day for some very important reasons. Remember, the first reason would be this. The Lord has always provided one particular day of the week to be set apart and observed by his people. The Lord has always, always set apart one particular day of the week to be observed by his people. We know in the Old Testament, we find God commanding his people to set apart the Sabbath day, to be a day of rest and a day of gathering in what the scriptures refer to as holy convocations. Look at this text with me in Leviticus chapter 23, verse 3, one of the many places we see this. God says, for six days work may be done, but on the seventh day there is a Sabbath of complete rest, a holy convocation. You shall not do any work. It is a Sabbath to the Lord in all your dwellings. Now, if you don't know what the word convocation means, it refers to an assembly or a gathering together of people. So we read in Leviticus and in several passages that God's people assembled together weekly on the Sabbath day to worship the Lord. Uh, they did that in all of their dwellings, it says. So it wasn't only in Jerusalem. It was in every place the people of God could assemble for worship. They kept the Sabbath day holy. I also want to remind you of what our confession of faith teaches and how this particular day of observing the Lord refers to us in the New Testament, how it relates to us there. This is from section 8 of the Baptist Confession of Faith 2000. Look at what it says. It says, the first day of the week is the Lord's day. It's a Christian institution for regular observance. It commemorates the resurrection of Christ from the dead and should include exercises of worship and spiritual devotion, both public and private. Activities on the Lord's Day should, uh, should be commensurated with the Christian conscience under the, the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And I want you to see that. It says that in our Baptist faith and message, our confession, that the key event that caused the change from the last day of the week to the first day of the week is the resurrection of Christ. That is what changed the day. We saw that uh, last week as we celebrated Easter, the key event that caused the change from the last day to the first day is nothing less than the resurrection of our Savior. The resurrection changed the day. In fact, all four gospel accounts mention that Jesus rose from the dead on the first day of the week. Now, we know that the resurrection of Jesus, it's the greatest event in all of human history, all of world history. Now, given its spectacular nature, it's no wonder that it would be permanently, permanently commemorated by Christ church on a weekly basis. It's the key to life eternal. The resurrection is key to everything we are, so it is to be understood that God would set apart a day to commemorate the resurrection of our Savior, because it's the basis for our existence of the church at all. The scriptures go on to show how Jesus and his church went on to observe this particular day of the week. After the resurrection, we find many more references to this phrase, the first day of the week. 
In fact, no other day of the week is ever even mentioned in the scriptures like the first day. We've got the, the old day of the Sabbath and the first day of the week. Those are the only two really you find mentioned in, with reoccurrence in the New Testament scriptures. The first day of the week is the day that Christ met with his disciples. Uh, when we read Luke's gospel, he also seems to go out of his way to emphasize the first day of the week. It was the day where Jesus met those on the road to Emmaus. We read from that account uh, as we did earlier in verse 1 of Luke 24, where it says, but on the first day of the week. He's referring to when Jesus rose from the dead. He's in agreement with all the other gospel writers. And then we read in verse 13 of uh, Luke 24, we're told it was that very day when Jesus appeared to them, those on the road to Emmaus. So really, when we consider the number of times that we're told that Jesus appeared to his followers on the first day of the week, we're left with a strong impression that, in fact, after his resurrection, Jesus could, could very easily be seen as likely only appearing to his disciples on Sunday. Sunday was a day Jesus met with his disciples prior to his ascension and they continue to meet with him spiritually in worship after his ascension on Sunday and every day, every Sunday since. We gather together on the first day of the week. Uh, we're told that Jesus meets us here in this place just like he did the saints of old. That Jesus promises us to be here with us in corporate worship in some very unique and special ways. Obviously, he is always with us everywhere we go, but in corporate worship, there's something special about it. This is where his ordinances are expressed and observed. It's where his means of grace are handed out in great measure, uh, particularly to his people. It's a special day. And it's meant to be special because Jesus made it special. In Acts chapter 2, we read that the Holy Spirit descended upon the church on the day of Pentecost, which was the 50th day, the first day of the week after seven weeks. Again, the Lord's Day, the first day of the week. In the early chapters of Acts, we see that it become a practice of the saints to gather on the first day of the week in worship. In fact, in Acts 20 verse 7, we learn that Paul was preaching on the first day of the week and he administered the Lord's Supper on that very day. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1 and 2, we learn that that was the day that offerings were taken up for the poor on the first day of the week. And given all this, we cannot escape the conclusion that Sunday is the most important day of the week for Christ's people. Sunday is the most important day of the week for Christ's people. After the resurrection, we see the first New Testament preaching taking place on Sunday. The first Lord's Supper taking place on Sunday. The first baptism taking place on Sunday. The Pentecost happening on Sunday. We see the saints gathering regularly together on Sunday. Isn't that a pretty powerful testimony as to the specialness of this day? 
I think we need to hear this in the midst of what we're celebrating even now. Even though I'm technically preaching this on a Friday to be aired on Sunday, when we gather together in worship around our TV screens or computer screens with our family, it is the most important day of the week. Don't let your attitudes uh, be, be something that's downtrodden or in despair during this difficult time. Let your attitude be that on Sunday we meet together, even if it's in unprecedented times like we see now. It's also interesting to note that the apostles often went into the synagogues on the day of the old Sabbath, the last day of the week, to reason with the Jews. But we're never told that they observed the Sabbath, the old Sabbath. Saturday signified the Sabbath of the first creation. There's some marvelous symbolism here. Sunday signified the Sabbath of the new creation. And it's quite fitting that the first Sabbath is given to us in the context of a covenant of works. It follows the paradigm quite nicely, doesn't it? Work for six days, then rest. But with the marvelous fulfillment of the covenant of works, Jesus now comes in with a new covenant, and he changes that paradigm from work to rest to rest then work. Work in light of the grace that's been given you in the rest that Christ provides. That's the symbolism we see in this. Work to rest was in the old covenant. A rest to work is in the new covenant. You see, in the old covenant, it was an if-then covenant. If we, we, if we obeyed the Lord, if they obeyed the Lord in the old covenant, he would bless them. If they disobeyed, he would curse them. And so they had to work, 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 and then ultimately see if they found their rest. In the Sabbath here, in the new covenant, friends, the work has been done. Christ has completed his work on the, on the cross so we can rest in him. And then because of what he's done, as we celebrated the first part of the week, we can work unto his glory. The new covenant marks the great transition, the fulfillment of the covenant of works for Christ's people. We're given a marvelous way to commemorate this transition by Jesus changing the Sabbath from the last day of the week to the first day of the week. While God's finished work of creation certainly deserved to be commemorated by the Sabbath, Jesus' finished work of redemption is even more glorious and deserves commemorated, to be commemorated by the new Sabbath. B.B. Warfield puts it like this. He says, Christ took the Sabbath into the grave with him and brought the Lord's day out of the grave with him on that resurrection morn. Friends, as Christians, we are new creatures in Christ. Uh, so we're obligated to serve and observe the new Sabbath. When we consider this, along with the fact that the day of Christ's resurrection uh, of the church has always met for, for worship on the first day of the week, historically this is what we've done, we can be at peace knowing we are observing the Sabbath on the correct day, which is Sunday. Now, I know what you're probably thinking right now, right? Pastor Cody, doesn't every day belong to the Lord? And absolutely, he's the creator of all things. The Lord's day is, uh, is every day in one way, but it's also the Sunday on a very unique way. He does set apart a particular day for us to be more unique. Jesus earned the right to have Sunday set apart as his day. Because of his obedience, he has uh, been given a name above all names. And so we should equally say that he's been given a day above all days. You know, it, it is interesting to me that so many people are content enough to celebrate the Easter resurrection once a year. 
But this is something that's so glorious and wondrous that we ought to come to worship every Lord's Day filled with this type of joy. This ought to be the thing that keeps us going from week to week. It's the basis of our existence. Now, I realize that some Christians think they have a prerogative to gather together on any other day of the week that's convenient for their schedule. Some would say they don't like the idea of worshiping, uh, limiting worship to a particular day of the week. But we must be careful to not attempt to be wiser than God with these particular matters. God was, was gracious and merciful. He was all wise in commanding us to observe one day out of seven because he knows without the commandment, we're not keeping it. <laughs> we're not going to get the rest and the fellowship that we so desperately need. Church, if God would have us to treat every day alike, he wouldn't have set apart for us a day to observe. It does matter to God what day of the week we come together for worship. Now listen, it is absolutely great if you have the desire and opportunity to worship the Lord every day. But even in the midst of worshiping him every day, we cannot forego worshiping on the Lord's day, his day. It is still set apart as the glorious gathering together of God's people. Let's move on. That, that's a lot of time on a phrase. I get that. Uh, but there's so much more here. And I think yet it's very important to understand why we celebrate Sunday as the Lord's Day. Let's go ahead and, and go back to verse 19 and read this verse one more time to see what more the Lord has for us to hear. So when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. Now again, in this same verse, John brings another detail to our attention. Jesus miraculously appears to his disciples. Jesus miraculously appears to his disciples. John tells us that the doors were shut because his disciples were living in fear of the Jews. After seeing what they had done to their master, they were fearful it might happen to them. So they gathered together in this place with the doors shut and locked. Now, the reason he includes this detail about the doors being shut and locked is to add to the wonder of how Jesus entered that room. John is telling us about another miracle of our Savior. Jesus entered into this room without using the doors. Now, how he did that is beyond our understanding. I mean, he is God after all. But the reason John brings this to our attention is to underscore his miraculous appearance to his disciples that evening. We should be amazed by this yet again at something we see in the life of our Savior. The disciples were amazed. In fact, the Bible says the disciples were even scared by what they saw. John doesn't provide us with this aspect of fear in their reaction, but Luke does, as we read earlier from Luke 24, 36 through 37. Luke says, while they were telling these things, he himself stood in their midst and said to them, peace be with you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they were seeing a spirit. That was their first reaction, fear. Certainly it would freak us out too, right? If you 
turn to see that the doors didn't open and Jesus is standing in their midst, that would be quite a scene. I remember it was not too long ago, or it feels long ago, uh, a couple years ago when we were transitioning our daughter Addie to sleep in her big girl bed, out of her crib and into her big girl bed. She was about two at the time, and I remember um, my beautiful wife Amy had, had went to sleep, and I had about an hour of just letting my brain decompress and getting ready for, uh, for bed. I'm a night owl, if you don't know that about me. And so it was about uh, 1045, 11 o'clock, everybody's asleep, and I'm finally tired. So I walk into the bedroom, and I put on my pajamas in complete pitch black. Uh, I go use the restroom, which is connected to our bedroom, and I walk out of the restroom, and all of a sudden, all I hear is my wife sit up very quickly and say, She's here uh, in a creepy, eerily way. And I uh, wasn't frightened at that until I turned. And without hearing anything, I see this little ball-headed children of the corn, like uh, two-year-old standing in my room. And I let out this <gasps> sort of uh, gasp because it terrified me. I didn't see her enter the room. Uh, and it was pitch black dark. And I was absolutely terrified. And if you want to take a man card for that, you're welcome to. I'm, I'm sure many of you will. Uh, but in being terrified, we certainly got her a gate the next day. Uh, but they were terrified. This is what the disciples felt. They didn't see Jesus come into the room. They knew the door was locked. They thought they were seeing a ghost. So what does Jesus do? He goes on to show them his hands and his side. Luke again provides us a little bit more detail in verses 38 through 40. He says, and he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do your doubts arise in your heart? See my hands and my feet that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. He even goes on to share with us that Jesus even took food and ate it in their presence. I want you to notice something, though. Something that's very important here in our text and then in Luke's text. It's only after Jesus showed them his wounds and told them to touch them that their fear turned to joy. Did you see that? Jesus' wounds turned the disciples' fear into joy. I just want us to think about that for a while. It was only after Jesus showed them his wounds that the peace that Jesus had spoken to them began to take root. Let's not miss something here. Uh, we're, we're told that the disciples were glad, uh, that they rejoiced when they saw them. Look at verse 20 of our text, what it says. And then when he said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. The disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. This isn't just a, a passing comment from the Apostle John here. R remember, John mentions this in order to show us something. And I think the, the first thing he wants to show us here is that Jesus had kept the promise he made to his disciples. He's given them a reminder of a promise kept, a reminder of a promise kept. I don't know if you remember this, but we spent quite a bit of time in John chapter 16. You remember Jesus there announces to the disciples that he is going to the cross and they were filled with sorrow. Jesus was speaking about his departure from them and they were incredibly saddened. But then Jesus says something to them in verse 22. He says, therefore you, have, you, uh, you too have grief now. But look what he says. He says, I will see you again and your heart will rejoice, and no one will take your joy away from you. 
See, what we have here in John 20 is nothing less than the fulfillment of the promise that Jesus had made. Jesus said their sorrow would be turned into joy, and that's exactly what we see here. Friends, Jesus loves his disciples. He could see that all this talk about leaving them was causing them sorrow, so what does he do? What is the best way he thinks he can minister to them in this context? He didn't change his plan to leave them. That was set in stone. It was necessary for their redemption. So what would Jesus do? In his love for them, he comforted them by promising them they would see him again. Friends, Jesus ministers to us today in the same manner of love, by making promises to us as well. I saw a great quote the other day from Thomas Wilcox that says this. It says, judge not Christ's love by providence, but by promises. Judge not Christ's love by providences, but by promises. What does that mean? Well, listen, Jesus loves his people, but that doesn't mean we won't go through some hard providences in our time. In this life, we will go through some difficulty, and if we were to judge Christ's love for us by the amount of difficult times we face, our hearts would fail us in a matter of a second. Instead, we ought to remember his promises to us. His promise that all our sorrow will be turned to joy. His promise that weeping will only last through the night, but a shout of joy will come in the morning. His promise that all things really are working together for our good, despite what seems to be the contrary. He is promising us these things, and we would do well to trust him in his promises. Let's turn and consider the wounds of Jesus a little bit more. It's important for us to understand the significance of these wounds shown to his disciples this evening. See, by showing his wounds, Jesus was also showing his disciples that he was truly human. He was reminding them of his humanity. And showing them his wounds, he was reminding them of his humanity. He wasn't a ghost. This answers the claim that by some that Jesus wasn't fully human, he was only spiritual. Well, no. The scars Jesus bears are the kind that happen to human bodies. Scars they could see, scars they could feel, scars they could touch. Those scars show that he had truly died. Nobody could survive what Jesus had undergone. And by showing those scars, he was showing them his identity, confirming that he was the very same one that hung from that gruesome cross just three days prior. And when he showed the scar on his side, remember that, that proved he wasn't just any person who had been crucified. Because it, it wasn't common for those who were crucified to be pierced through the side. Jesus was really going out of the way to show without a shadow of a doubt that it was truly him. You know, I think it's all too often common for us to forget that Jesus is still very much human. You know that, don't you? That he is no less human today than he was back then. Of of course, when, when we read through the gospel accounts, we take note of his earthly ministry, it's easy for us to believe that he was human. But how often do we forget that he continues to be even human after his resurrection? Even as he sits upon his glorious throne, ruling over his, through his providence, he sits upon that throne as one of us fully human. 
Of course, fully God, yes, but fully human also. He sits upon that throne still bearing the wounds and the marks of his gruesome crucifixion. It's important for us to remember that Jesus is fully God, but he's also man. It's also important for us to understand the significance of his wounds as it relates to the work he has done. His wounds serve as a reminder of his accomplished work. They're also a reminder of his accomplished work. Friends, remember, if if we have any hope of being saved, we must understand that Jesus was wounded for our transgressions. It is only by his stripes that we find ourselves being healed. As we look to Jesus, his wounds remind us of redemption. He reminds us that redemption didn't come cheaply. A very high price was paid. The price is higher than we will ever fully know. And the thing is, while most of us try to hide the scars we have, the scars of Jesus are part of his glory. And no doubt it's difficult to fathom why Jesus bears his scars even in a glorified body. But those scars are part of what makes him glorious. Those scars are like the battle scars of a great warrior. They're a badge of honor on our Savior. His scars are a constant reminder of all who will inhabit eternity in heaven, of the basis for them being able to inherit the kingdom. On this side of glory, his scars also remind us of something else. They remind us that he has suffered in his humanity, and so he knows how to sympathize with us in our wounds as we undergo on this side of glory. Not only is this a reminder of his accomplished work, it's a reminder that he can sympathize with our sufferings. The one who sits upon the throne, the one who governs all things, is human like you and I in a way. But because this is the case... He knows how to minister to us in our time of need. In his humanity, Jesus knows how to minister to his children. The same one who sits upon the heavenly throne knows what it's like to be betrayed. He knows what it's like to have people who were once his friends turn his back on him. He knows what it's like to be dejected, to have problems with others in his family. He knows what it's like to be homeless. He knows what it's like to be taken advantage of, to be falsely accused of things he never did, to be unjustly tried sentenced and punished he knows what it's like to have a close friend die he knows what it's like to have sorrow what it is to cry to shed tears to experience pain and even agony beyond anything we will ever know so friends listen to me if you this morning are going through anything like this it should encourage you to know that Jesus has been there He knows exactly what you are going through and he knows exactly how to minister to your soul today. Do not think that you know how to minister to your own hurt soul better than Jesus does. No way is that the case. There are many doctors who, because they've never gone through what you are going through, have a very difficult time knowing what to say or even how to treat the various conditions they encounter. But with Jesus, friends, we have truly the great physician who knows exactly what to say to us and what to provide for our complete healing. Look to him today. I pray that was the case. Another is fruit of his ministry that we see at the end of our sermon here now is peace. 
I want to transition to something that's prominent in this text. Jesus pronounces uh, purchased peace. Uh, I've slipped myself up there with the alliteration. Jesus pronounces purchased peace. As we approach our conclusion this morning, I want to bring to our attention something Jesus says to his disciples three times in this small section of scripture. In verse 19, he's going to do it again as we see next week in verse 21 and in verse 26. Jesus greets his disciples with the words, peace to you or peace with you. And I know this is a common Hebrew form of a greeting, yes, but the fact he uses this greeting three times in such a short amount of time, it, it causes me to think that certainly there's something going on here that's more than just a customary greeting. I am persuaded that Jesus isn't simply going through some formal niceties to his disciples here. He is actually pronouncing a true blessing upon them. When he says, a peace to you, I believe he was actually bestowing and granting peace to them. This shalom that Jesus pronounces here is the complement to his statement on the cross where he cries out, it is finished. It is through his finished work that he is now able to bless his people with shalom, with peace. The kind of peace that comes from being reconciled to God. It's because of Jesus' finished work on the cross of Calvary that men, women, and children can experience peace in the truest sense of the word. How, though, do we partake of this peace? How is this peace then given to us? Well, as with the disciples, it comes once people believe that Jesus is the one who went to the cross. That he's the one who went to suffer for our sins and was raised from the dead for our justification. When the disciples truly recognize that the person standing in their midst is the same person that just three days earlier had died on the cross and was buried in the tomb. It was then that they knew that the peace of God that comes from being at peace with God. There's no greater experience, friends, than knowing that Jesus is the risen Savior. Listen, church family, if you're having financial troubles and those troubles suddenly get resolved, you might be relieved for a time. But I guarantee you, you will have other troubles that will follow. Uh, Momentary relief from a trouble in life is not the same peace we're discussing this morning. Uh, If you have a serious illness, maybe even a life-threatening disease, and you get cured, again, I can assure you, you will have more problems later down the road. It's a guarantee if you live on this side of glory, any relief from particular troubles in this life, they are only temporary. Other troubles are sure to follow. But if you know Jesus, if you know this one who lived, died, and resurrected to life for your salvation, then you will have a peace that will outlast every trouble you will ever face in this life. Isn't that good news? The peace that comes from Jesus, friends, it's eternal. It's everlasting peace. It's a peace that will never be quenched or never taken away from you. If you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, then you have peace with God, which is the greatest peace a person can have in this life. Listen, let me tell you something. If all is well between you and God, 
then all is well. <laughs> it's that simple. If we have the peace of God, then the scriptures say that his peace will do something for us. It will guard our hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Once you have this peace, there is an ongoing peace that bears fruit in you, guarding our hearts and our minds. Brothers and sisters, the more we fix our attention upon our Savior and the peace that he provides for us, the more at peace we will be even in the greatest calamities that we face in this life. A, a Christian, a true Christian, can be at peace even in the midst of life's greatest storms because he or she knows that as long as they belong to Christ, they have peace with God and ultimately all is well so long as they are at peace with God. That leads us to a final application this morning. Friends, if you are listening to this and you don't have um, any resemblance of peace in your life, that peace is not something that describes you. Peaceful is not something that describes you. I wonder if you have peace with God. Uh, there's two options. You are either at peace with God or you're not. And if you're at peace with God, maybe you just struggle to be reminded of that. And you as a Christian by faith need help in being reminded of that. But maybe there's part of you or there are some out there listening to this who know they've never actually had peace with God. If that's you, friends, the answer is simple. What Jesus has accomplished and what we've been studying, his death and resurrection, he's accomplished and purchased for sinners like you. You today can repent of your sins. You can trust in the finished work of our Savior and his resurrected ministry. And you, friends, today can have peace that surpasses all understanding. Uh, you, you probably have seen this peace in the life of Christians before. When they lose loved ones, they can still have peace because of what Christ has purchased. Friends, if, if you're here and you're listening to this and you never had that peace with God, it is available to you today. Repent, trust in Christ, and be saved. And for us, church family, may we draw from that source of being at peace with God to live peaceful lives, knowing that if all is well between us and God, then truly all is well. Amen. Please join your hearts with me together in prayer. Father, we thank you for the peace that you've purchased on the cross of Calvary. We thank you that by your wounds we are healed. We thank you for those of us who have trusted Christ that we have access to this wonderful ministry that you provide for us. That you're reminding us that you are fully human, that you're reminding us that this is your day um, and we rejoice and be glad in it, that you are reminding us that because you are human, you can sympathize with our sufferings. There's so much here, uh, Lord, that is worth uh, our rejoicing. And so we pray that as your people, we would rejoice in what you've done in the ministry. Uh, you continue to intercede for us. Lord, we uh, pray for those who do not have peace with God, those listening to this that know in their heart of hearts that they have not bowed a knee and trusted you as Savior. Lord, um, we pray that they would see their lives as not something that's peaceful, whether it's uh, peace with, the, with their spouse that they don't have or peace with their family or peace with their coworkers or others. Ultimately, it's all a reflection of whether or not they have peace with you. So Father, would you encourage them if they don't know you this morning, if they don't have peace with God, that you would convict their hearts and they would simply call out to you and ask for faith and ask, uh, Lord, that your finished work on the cross would be for them. We love you, Lord, and we trust you to work in how you see fit. We pray this in Jesus' name.
Amen. Amen. Why don't we stand and sing a reflection song together?